is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest was a former national team member who represented his native country of Mexico. Highlights of his competitive career include medals at Pan American Championships, U.S. Open, and a silver medal at the British Open, where he faced world judo champion Neil Adams in the final. At the conclusion of his competitive career in 1984, he faced a big challenge of identity as he hung up his judo gi in exchange for a suit and tie. He pursued his dream of becoming a businessman. His big break came in 1986 when he went full steam ahead in his newly found passion in the sales and management of commercial real estate. His career took an immediate upward trajectory that led him to become one of the highest grossing agents for Marcus Milchak, which is the number one commercial real estate investment sales brokerage in North America. He's executed over $900 million in real estate transactions equating to almost 9,000 multifamily units. Today, we'll explore one man's passion to constantly become better in life learning to cope with and overcome defeat while learning to understand the true importance in life. He is the founder and CEO of the Cerna Group, which is a full-service real estate investment firm that represents owners and investors in the sale, acquisition, and management of commercial real estate properties. His firm has become one of the most dominant real estate brokerages in the multifamily sector, serving clients across the country. Please welcome the JudoCast 1980 Olympian, Eduardo Cerna. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join me here on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here in the JudoCast studios. And uh, this is a conversation that uh, I've been looking forward to for quite some time. But uh, welcome and, and thank you for coming out. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So we're going to start your story right from the beginning. Like many of us, um, you've been a lifelong judoka and you got your start in judo as a young boy growing up in Mexico in the late 1960s. So how did you find yourself in judo at that time? I think that uh, at that point in time, I was already, uh, I belonged to the YMCA, and I went out there and inquired about judo. So they were having judo classes, and I um, met this guy that was an unbelievable judo player out of Meiji University named Tomoyoshi Yamaguchi who was, uh, I think, six or seven degree black belt, but the guy was magnificent. Actually, he f ended up to be second or third place for the 19 to qualify for the 1976 Olympics when uh, Wamura, that was later president of the Japanese Judo Federation, was the guy who beat him. So he was, he was very close to that, but he was a fantastic judo player. So I actually just recently had a guest, Toshi Yamada, who was here in San Jose in uh, the late 90s. I just interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, and we had a nice talk about the Japanese influence of judo all over the world. So is there, I mean, I, I know lots of people that have come out of Mexico, judo players, and it seems like there's a really big Japanese influence for judo. Was that the case when you were a kid? Was there a lot of Japanese senseis around there? Absolutely. I think that they were very, not only very respected, but I think that the way that they introduced judo in, in, in Mexico really changed the way that uh, people view sports because they were all about training long hours. And uh, you know what? Very determined people. And that really helped to form character on little kids. And that was the main influence that I had. 
So during your childhood, like right around the time you started judo, Mexico City hosted the 1968 Olympic Games. Now, as we discussed earlier, judo was actually a trial sport in 1964, but it wasn't fully introduced until 1972 in Munich. So unfortunately, there was no judo in the uh, 68 games. But having the games in Mexico City obviously brought a lot of attention, investment, and other things to sports programs, as well as the buildup of infrastructure and other sporting facilities. I know you were just a boy at the time, but is there any memorable changes for you or even for judo as a sport in Mexico after the Olympic Games took place? Yes, I think that the influence was tremendous, especially because, you know, we never had that big of a games in, in, in Mexico City. And I was so close to all the, uh, all the new stadiums that they were built and all that. They built a facility called the Mexican Olympic Committee. And after 1968 Olympics, I started training in 1969 and the Mexican Olympic Committee. I always wanted to go there and train. So I started training at the YMCA, YMCA at age 11. And at age 14, I was being uh, invited to go and train at the Mexican Olympic Committee and just for maybe a couple of times a week. And that was just a, a huge high for me. So uh, is your family from Mexico City or you actually moved to Mexico City? No, my mom and dad are from Mexico City. They still live in Mexico City, age 93 and 90. Wow. So you've got uh, <laughs> good genes in the Cerna family. That's, that's great to hear. Yes. So uh, your parents were not judo players, but they see that all of the, you know, the byproducts and the success that judo has shown you know, to their child. And I think they must be super proud of all the opportunities and things that judo kind of provided you. Do, do your parents talk about judo much these days? You know what? My parents talk about uh, sports when we were, my brother and I were younger. My, you know, I had a brother that was uh, a year and a half younger than me, and it was great because we used to go and train together. But my dad and mom were never really involved in the sport, never understood the sport of judo. And uh, my dad was totally intellectual, so he didn't have a lot of passion for sports. He had passion for the books. He's a very successful uh, surgeon, and uh, he oftentimes asked me, you know, what kind of pleasure or fun do you find when you go and rub heads with another sweaty guy all afternoon long? I said, I, I don't get it. <laughs> That's funny. So, so do you remember having these uh, differences with your dad when you? So you're falling for judo and you're loving judo. You want to train every day, and you're starting to see some opportunities of whether it's to travel to the United States to experience some different tournaments. And if this this whole time is, I'm assuming your dad is trying to push like studies and stuff. Is that is that the case? You think? Uh, absolutely. For him, is a I I don't want you to to bring home a straight edge, but bring me B's or C and never leave a school. That was that was his thing. You know, I had to stay in a school. And I remember I started looking for ways to how can I put more hours of training while I go to school? That was my only way. I want to get out of school at one o'clock in the afternoon and go train. And that's what I did. Right. And I dedicated all my afternoons of training like, you know, sometimes a couple of classes a day because I love to go to the YMCA and you have a membership and they don't charge you. If you can go to two or three different classes, you can do it. And and I did. So I was pretty much training every afternoon. And Saturdays and Sundays, I asked my mom and dad or 
mainly Saturdays to drop me off at the YMCA and I will swim a mile and then I go to the weight room because I wanted to get stronger, you know. I didn't know how to get stronger, but I believe that if I did a lot of exercise, uh, the, <laughs> the outcome will be there, you know. Right. So as a child, you're, you're going gung-ho with judo. You're feeling good. You're feeling athletic. You're starting to feel strong. And at some point, you find yourself at San Jose State. Can you tell us the story of how you ended up going to school at San Jose State? Well, wow. That's, that's a, that was a big, big uh, step. I think that was the step that really changed my life. After being in Mexico City, you know, in, in, in the junior team, I won the nationals at age 15. And then I started training in the Mexican Olympic Committee. And then I started traveling to the United States. And we uh, had trips to Central America and South America. So I was competing internationally at age 16, 17, uh, until age 19, when I, that was my first time that I heard about San Jose State, and we decided to give it a shot and come and train in San Jose State, because it was close, and uh, obviously I wanted to go to Japan, but I didn't have the money or the ability or the connections to go there. So when you say we, are you talking about your uh, your good friend and former teammate, uh, Gerardo Padilla? Yes, I definitely. You know, and I, and I was not only talking about my teammate, I was talking to about two or three guys to say, hey, let's get out of Mexico and go and train somewhere else. I just wanted to get to become better. But, you know, there were other things that came uh, at a very high price once that I did that. What, what do you mean? Well, you know, a lot of times you go out there and you try to to, uh, to be better and sacrifice. And uh, so I decided to go to the United States. And a lot of people saw that move in the Mexican Federation and my teammates like, oh man, how can you go somewhere else to train where we're here to train and to become better? And you know what? One of the things that I, uh, the price that I had to pay is a lot of times they did, they wouldn't take me to tournaments uh, or they give me a real hard time to go out there for the tryouts, and that was the price because at that point in time, people saw you like you were an outsider, that you were not part of them, and I didn't realize that until probably a year and a half or two years after. So a year and a half, two years later, you're approaching, I guess, the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, and here you are living in San Jose, but you've got to qualify for the Olympics how do, you, how do you make the Olympic team for Mexico living in San Jose? Were, were you traveling back and forth for trial events, or how did that take place? I was, and, and it was pretty exhausting. But the main thing that happened to me back in December, I torn my uh, meniscus. So I went to the doctor, and Dr. Martin Trieb, who was who was a great surgeon, a San Jose State, he says, hey, you got to get the arthroscopic surgery. I got to fix that tear because if not, it's going to bother you. And there's only 30 days for the tryouts. So I had, in, in, in January 5th, 1979, I had the arthroscopic surgery. In January 6th, uh, 1980, I went and won the Olympic tryouts. So it was, it was the first thing, you know, to, to make sure that I was on my way to, to just to, to get a better level of, 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 of judo. You know, I always wanted to go to the next level. So this has got to be a, a big time in your life. You go back home and, and you're fighting in a tournament and maybe slightly feeling like an outsider because you moved to California and your, your teammates are all in California. And, and I guess you and, and Gerardo both had to fly back to, uh, to compete at the Olympic trials. Several times, sure. Several times. So what kind of welcoming did you get when you went home? Were people supportive or you had, was it a little bit of everything going on? You know what? I, I tell you, once that you leave the nest... People 
wants to see if uh, I tell you that a lot of times that I went and competed, I I really felt like a lot of people wanted me just to lose, regardless. It was because oh, you just left left us, and you think you know US is better. It was not that US is better or worse. You know, I I really wanted to fulfill my dream to become better at the game, to be, be become better at what I did, and you know. That happens right after I finished Samsung State. I, I looked to go to Japan, and I went to Japan for a couple of years, and and from there continued to build. You know, that was my dream, always be surrounding myself with the best. And I think San Jose State was not only a great, great step, but the, the teachings that Mr. Uchida gave me was to stay in school and to make sure you get educated, because that is that is what is going to stay there after after you know your your time point is for sports finish i think that this is probably something that maybe made your dad happy when you come to san jose state because you do have the influence of like you said mr achita who we all know he puts a lot of energy and focus on school i mean he loves judo i don't think there's anybody who loves judo more than mr achita but he also knows the value of education and he's not going to let you come here and slack off and be what some would call a judo bum. So the fact that you came here to San Jose and you did have somebody here coaching the program and, and providing this positive influence, that must have made your dad a little happy. Well, that is that is the general belief. <laughs> but I tell you what really happened. My my dad just finished building a real nice house, nice house in uh, January, February 1978. In, in uh, June or July 1978, I left home with a couple of... Uh, pairs of jeans and two geese, you know, and I was, I didn't know if I was going to stay or not. And I told my dad, I might not come back in, and, uh, until December. He said, well, you're going to miss school. I said, well, I know. So he was very disappointed. He was very disappointed because he was, he just finished building a house and he wanted me to stay there. And I was the oldest in the family. And, and obviously, you know, I had a lot more responsibility in terms of expectations than all my other brothers and sisters. And, uh, I went to San Jose State, and he thought that I was just going to be partying, and I wasn't going to go to school. And uh, but you know, years went back, and uh, after that, I I patched up our, my difference with my dad, and he understood. And I got I got the day that I told him that I graduated, he was very happy. He couldn't believe it, even though he, you know, my uh, <clears throat> NCAA medals and everything else didn't matter to him. What it matters to him matter to him is that I finish my education. Right. Well, I mean, that is obviously the most important thing for Mr. Achita as well. I think maybe at the time your father didn't really know about Mr. Achita. That's a possibility that he didn't know the positive influence that you would have when you come to San Jose State. But looking back and, you know, over the years that go by, they're, they're able to understand that you were influenced by great people and, and, and things turned out for you. So, so during that time, you talk about graduating from San Jose State, but there was a big milestone that you got to go. You became an Olympian. So in 1980, um, you got to go to Moscow to fight in the Olympics. And this is, um, I had a great conversation with Keith Nakasone, who made the Olympic team for the United States. And, you know, of course, you know the story better than I, but the uh, United States boycotted the Olympic Games and, and quite a few nations boycotted the name. So, so some of your uh, teammates at San Jose State were unable to attend that tournament that you and uh, Gerardo were able to go to and... Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in Moscow? I think I think that one of the things that I got to tell you is the first thing is it, it, it became half of the World Olympic Games. And back in 1984, we had the same thing as a repeat, you know, mirror of a mirror. 
uh, kind of a payback. And and I think with all these things, the uh, the, the the people that suffer the most is the athletes that have the opportunity to pick a certain point in time, and they don't have the chance to live that dream. But you know, as 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 any other things happen in life that uh, that that hold you back, it's up to you to really race to the level of overcoming these things in life. You know that that become. I mean, you know, I did not go to the nineteen eighty four Olympics. I lost in the tryouts for very different reasons. You know, I think they weren't arranged, they, they, they postponed it, and they, they, they wanted another guy to fight. And at the end of the day, I, I remember what I couldn't accomplish. And it's very hard for me to talk about it. That, and it is for Kid Nakasone, another of my teammates that didn't get to go, and actually all the, all the American team and all the people that we used to work out with. But at the end of the day is we cannot continue to feel sorry for things that are out of our control. I think what makes makes us, you know, bigger person is to overcome the things that are harder in our heart and, and, and what we always wait for an explanation, you know? Right. I, I, I think that, you know, uh, I mean, my dream was the 1984 Olympics. I was at prime on my, my time, and I had an opportunity to either continue on to 1988 or step down and, and, and start a different kind of living. And, you know, one of the things that, I, that made my decision is we are in the best country in the world to develop anything that you want it to be. And I always wanted to be a businessman. Besides the judo guy, I always right. wanted to be a businessman. So it was yeah. time to start working. And you know what? I, I cannot begin to tell you how depressed I was from 1984 to 1986. In 1984, I was knocking doors and trying to get a job, and nobody will hire me. And the people who hire me will give me like eighteen dollars to $20,000 a year salary. I refused to work for that. Maybe I was stupid, you know, or maybe I was only worth fifteen. <laughs> but, you know, that's what prompted me to, to uh, discover a different way of making a living, and that's where I discovered real estate. So you and I talked a little bit about defeat, and I know it's a difficult topic that people don't really like to talk about, but the older we get, hindsight shows us that defeats earlier in life often lead us to strive for bigger and better things. So after the 1984 Olympic trials, you mentioned that you were depressed. I think athletes experience depression of varied levels after competition, not only due to the result, but because there's a lack of goals going forward. You know, as athletes, we spend our lives chasing these long-term goals and sometimes we forget, or at least we don't realize the importance is really the process, right? So once we've gone through the process with these high expectations on the outcome and it ends up with this like big heavy burden of what's going to be next in life. And I think as athletes, we kind of all experience that at the end. And of course, if you were unable to meet your life's goals or fulfill the expectation that you had for yourself, it, it might even be harder. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made the transition from being an athlete to becoming a businessman and more specifically to becoming a real estate broker? Well, one of the things is I have been out of the school for a couple of years. So I wanted to go back and get my uh, real estate broker's license. That took, if I want to become a broker, not a salesperson, but a broker, I had to take a couple of years of classes, I think a year, because they, they validated some of the credits that I have from San Jose State, like business law and, and uh, et cetera. So 
I took principles of real estate, real estate appraisal, etc. I think a total of six classes, three uh, three credits per class, and then you had to take the exam. <laughs> it took me three times to pass that exam. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you know, part of part of being defeated, you know, and part of being able to, you know, kind of a, uh, you know. Just shake up the dust, get up, and continue on until you do it again. I remember my first, I was so broke, it's 1986, and I will go to the, I just got married. I have a, 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 a four or five month old at home, um, empty refrigerator, and I will go out there and, and look at the, the real estate exam results. And I open my, my envelope and it says, you score 68 I needed 70 to pass. I said 68. There were two tests, 100 questions in the morning, 100 questions in the afternoon. So that means that I missed two questions in the morning and two questions in the afternoon. I went the second time to take the test. I went back about three couple, or three or four weeks later to check out on the mailbox, and I got my test results. I opened the, uh, the results, and I scored 55. I said, what happened? I still hard, studied harder, and I didn't pass. So the third time came around, a friend of mine says, I'll be, left me a voicemail, I'll be in your house in Belmont at, at uh, 6.30 in the morning to go to uh, San Francisco to take the exam. And I lis- I'm listening to this message at 1 o'clock in the morning. I came back from, from a party. <laughs> I said, you got to be kidding me. The test is tomorrow. Wow. I didn't study of anything, so I went. And uh, took the test and I passed. And I didn't study at all, so go figure. Right. I had a great conversation uh, two weeks ago with uh, Jason Rivera. He's a a judo friend of mine, and he's the CEO of a big salon, um, Phoenix Salons. And uh, he started this business. uh, His wife is a stylist, and he took this thing from two locations in Colorado Springs to what now has about 280 locations around the country. So he chalked it up. In an interesting way, he was talking about judo and how it relates to like your perseverance in business. And and in judo, we do have defeat. Everybody in judo experiences defeat because judo is just not one of those sports where you can go undefeated for you know year after year after year. It's like unless you're Teddy Reiner, you know most people are losing matches. But as a judoka, you learned I think to get a little bit of thick skin. You know sometimes. You, you tell yourself, you know, I would tell myself like, no, I didn't lose that match. You know, I, I, I lost the match, but I'm convincing myself that I didn't really lose that match because I've got it. I've got to keep myself positive so you can walk out there. And, and sometimes this isn't within the same day, right? We've lost tournaments, you know, lost a match early. And you're like, look, I have a chance to come back and get the bronze medal. Yes. You've got to, you know, you got to reconfigure yourself and get back out there and stay positive and go for it. And I think that it's the same thing in business. You know, you can't, uh, if, uh, you can't afford to let a no stop you from what you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, one of your earlier jobs that kind of helped you with this perseverance of door-to-door sales? Wow, let's talk about door-to-door sales. Um, I joined these guys that they were selling, uh, while I was working on my real estate na- license, they said, hey, we sell knives. I said, what do you mean? Yeah, we se- sell these knives. It's called the Cobra Knives. There's 10 or 15 na- uh, knives for stainless steel, super resistance for 20 bucks. And here are 10 boxes, so you get rid of those in, in probably two hours, you'll be doing very well. And you would be making 100 to 200 bucks a day. Right. I said, okay, so let's go sell knives. Boy, you know, that was a hard work. A lot of door knocking, but it was just a $20 pop. So that was 
fairly easy to do. You you know, you probably talk to anybody that didn't need, need knives and they will buy you one if you were a, a if, if you were persuasive enough. Right. So that was one of the things. Uh, then I joined Metropolitan Life to sell life insurance because you know my my real estate test results weren't coming fast enough and I needed to make some money to support the family. So I went out there and, and started selling life insurance for a period of time. And after a year, I went back and I told the uh, the manager that I was quitting and he was very upset. He said, hey, you can make a lot of money here. You had a great start. Don't do that. It'll be the wrong thing to do. Despite the fact that, you know, that he thought that, and I really liked the guy, it was a hard decision for me to to make, I decided, you know, to pursue my dream, which has, was to sell real estate. And now the question became, where am I going to go to sell real estate and what kind of real estate? So I started digging into all these companies that they were selling residential real estate, and I didn't like it. It's not that I was, it was just not for me, you know. And I said, who sells all these buildings that have no signs out there? I never seen, they sell for lease, but never for sale. Who sells this? A friend of mine said, you know, there's a company somewhere in the mid-peninsula that they dedicate themselves to do that. So I started, you know, um, checking them out, went to a local company in San Jose and got a job there selling commercial real estate. What they give you is a desk and a phone. And I said, go ahead and do it. I said, do what? I didn't know how to do anything, you right. know? <laughs> so I read a... Uh, on a, a, a newspaper called in those days the Real Estate Journal. I think it was the newest newspaper. It's 1980, the end of 1980, mid-1987. And there's a baseball bat and says, would you like to become part of the big leagues and, 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 and a glove and a baseball and uh, come and join First Union Investment Corporation? So they said, uh, who are these guys? I said, they sell commercial real estate. You got to be kidding me. No, the guy that opened up used to comes from a, a really successful company. His name is Jim Castellanos. You got to go and talk to those guys. So I went and talked to them, and here is a company that does what I want to do. They sell apartment buildings. They explained to me what they do, what hours do they have. They have actually a, a week training that will teach me how to start. And I, you know, I think a week training, when after after you trained for years in Utah, you, you said you got to be kidding me. Yeah, one week, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to become a, a black belt for, for selling real estate in a week. Right. But anyway, I took the class. It was fantastic. The best experience that I had because I got in touch with somebody that was a top leader in the industry of selling large deals. I, you know, uh, I was lucky enough that everybody in that company helped me tremendously until I joined nine, back in 1990 Marcus and Millichap in the Palo Alto office and they went, I was on my way I think that uh, that company had a lot of uh, a lot of potential and look where Marcus and Millichap is today is the number one is the number one investment firm in United States states and George Mike Marcus is a guy that re-educated everybody back in the late 80s when I started in the business. So between 1986 and 1990, before you got your job at Marcus Milchap, was it just a lot of, you know, pounding the pavement and, and just hard work? You know, I heard something recently, or I, I read something about uh, Warren Buffett. It said it took him 
nine years before he earned his first million dollars. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, fancy sales guys out there trying to push product on people and ways that you can earn a million dollars real fast. And I think that people are not willing to to do the hard work and the long work. But I think that judo kind of taught us all of that when we were at a much younger age, the whole thing about deferred gratification, which is not really part of American society, you know, and it's even worse now, I think with kids that get rewarded for these little video games and there's no losing and everyone wants a reward right away. But judo kind of teaches you that deferred gratification and chasing a goal for many, many years is going to be a lot of hard work before you start to see success. So you spent four years before you got your opportunity at Marcus Milchap. Tell us a little bit about what was going on during those four years, and then tell us how things changed once you got in the doors at Marcus. I think that, you know, like in judo or anything else, you have to develop self-confidence. How do you develop self-confidence? What you, one, you have to do the work. I mean, to me, what made me feel confident on the mat, and I go back to what happened when I was successful in sports and what is going to determine how can I be successful in business. I got to take what I learned and move it into, the, uh, into a different area because you know what? There's a lot of common ground. Success leaves clues. So I went, what clues did I have when I was feeling confident, you know, in, 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 uh, in judo? One of the things was to do the hard work. One of the things that you do in real estate is do the work. The hard work is to learn about transactions, to make sure that you call people and you are in front in in, uh, in front of enough people. It's like you run Doris, you know. You have to go and do your fights every day. You're sparring. Same thing here. The second thing that made me feel confident is when you close a deal. When people go and, and close deals, they go out there and they say, "Oh, I made ten or fifteen thousand bucks." In those days, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money to me, for sure. Right. So I met this guy. His name was Steve Ritchie. He's probably the best salesman I have ever seen. I love Steve. He was just such a nice guy, but he had tremendous amount of presence. It's like when we see a judo player with presence, when we see the Yamashtas of the world, the Neil Adams, the Mike Swains, it's, there's presence on these guys. There's presence on the mat. Steve had a lot of presence, and he will walk away in any situation from anybody that once that he tried to sell them something and they didn't want it, he will take it away. He was the best. And one of the things that Steve always said is you, add, you have to ask for the order. If you don't ask, you will never get. Right. So I think that was one of the main, the main reasons I'm being around Steve and my, in, in my days of first union was very influential to me to start developing that confidence. After you close a transaction, you always got to continue calling. It's like after you win a tournament, you want to go and make sure that you go out there and compete once again, once because you're confident and twice. There's one thing that you got to discover within self, within yourself, and that's, do I really have it? Do I still have it? Because you know what? It comes to the test every time. A famous quote in the real estate world says that you should never wait to buy real estate. You should buy real estate and wait. You have all heard the advice, just buy it and hold it forever. Ed will tell us why that might not always be the best advice. In the long run, you're better off learning to recognize market changes while being adaptable. 
One of the biggest strengths that you can have as a buyer is the ability to spot the upside. And over time, he learned to think differently. When some buyers and property managers would simply try to milk a building and suck out every last dollar, Ed became an expert at finding ways to increase the quality of life for tenants while keeping his costs in check. Coming up, Ed will tell us about his most memorable large transaction where he had to share $10,000 of his commission, which didn't make him too happy. In closing, Ed will share his list of the five important things that you should do in life to help you become successful. And always remember the way you felt when you cinched up your belt before a match. It's a powerful moment. So do you remember any particular sale that kind of broke the ground for you? Anything that you remember in the beginning of your career where you maybe made your first large transaction or, or maybe you got a big commission that was bigger than you were accustomed to and you kind of told yourself like, this is what I've been looking for. Do you remember that moment? I, I remember that moment and I remember the transaction and I'm telling you, <laughs> yes, I do. There was, I listed this property that was going to go in foreclosure and I know the address by heart, 1991 Story Road in San Jose. I went and made to the owner. The owner says, hey, this property is going in foreclosure. If you're going to sell it, uh, go ahead. But I'm telling you, you only have like three weeks because they're going to foreclose on the property. I went out there, took the listing, start call calling people. I called this uh, Korean fellow in San Jose that... Uh, very tough negotiator, man. This this guy made my life miserable, <laughs> uh, and I knew then I learned how to how people carve deals. So I took the building to him. I sold it to him. I represented the buyer and the seller, which is very hard to do. It's called double ending in, in real estate. Right. I closed that transaction. He, the, you know, the buyer came after an additional credit. The seller wanted to kill the deal. And we have to give him a little bit of the commission. So Jim Castellanos, the guy that was the owner of the company, First Union at the time, uh, he said to me, hey, what if we give Andy 20 grand? So, you know, from the top of the fee, and you tell me if on Friday, that was Wednesday afternoon, and you tell me if on Friday you want to have $40,000 on your pocket or not. What a closer. Right. So, <laughs> obviously, we did the deal. Uh, I got I got on that Friday 40000 The seller was kind of upset. You know, the buyer was kind of upset. But I remember the buyer met me, and I went to give him the keys at that building on the Story Road. And we had it out a couple of times because he's extremely, uh, he's extremely uh, unreasonable, and he always wanted more and more and more. But I learned how to stop that. But anyway, he looked at me and I gave him, I said, Andy, here are the keys of the building. So he reached for the keys and he looked at me in the eye and he said, you were the winner. And extended his hand and shook his hands and we shook hands and that was the end of that. But yes, it was a very, very tough transaction. I mean, for me to give $10,000 of the fee on those days after you have worked so hard for it. It was kind of uh, unreasonable. I didn't think it was right. But you got to remember one thing. It's not what is right all the time. So sometimes you have to say, hey, this is what I can take. And I did my best and I grab it. And also my broker thought it was a pretty good deal for us. I said, think about this. Ed, 
at the end of the day, he's going to end up with that pile of real estate that you probably can't sell to anybody else. And he was right. <laughs> right. So after 30 years of being in the business, how do you separate yourself from the competition? The market goes through cycles. There are times that are considered buyer's markets or seller's markets. I guess if you're in the transaction business, there's really never a, a bad time to buy or sell. But what have you learned over the years that helps you differentiate yourself from the competitor and maybe something that allows you to have a better ability to connect to the customer? I think that one of the one of the things that is really important is you have to make sure that you see past that point in time of the transaction in terms of how the building looks and the the point in time when you bought the building. Let me explain. The building looks like it is a building that is all beat up, which is the transactions that I always sell, the C type of buildings. I think what you need to do is think beyond the building. What are the people inside the building looking for? People inside the building are looking for a better lifestyle, for a better quality of living. What can I do to make the difference to that people that are living inside instead of milking the building? I used to go and buy up buildings from there's certain people that didn't didn't do anything to the building. You know, uh, we said, oh, this guy owns a building and he's a foreigner from X and X country and he doesn't do any any uh, any any work. So there were tons of deferment. And so there were people that they were collecting rents from people that had no money or very little money. And you can see that in the 90s. In the 90s, from 1990 to 1995 was one of the worst real estate recessions that we had ever had. And the the, uh, the the real estate market, especially apartment buildings, led the recession. 2008, the product type that led us out of the recession were apartment buildings. You know, it was a product that it was, and it's still the product that everybody wants because it's a basic need. But one of the things that I got to tell you is what made the difference is I decided that Ed Serna was the difference that make the difference. I have to think different than anybody else. I have to see how can I get people to raise their standard of living and feel better about themselves. You know what? Let's assume that the unit is overcrowded. Instead of the unit being overcrowded, why don't you go in there and see what can you do in order to have a better, you know, better kitchen for the people that live there and all that so they can appreciate more, you know, to be living there and wanted more. And that's one of the things we started rehabbing apartment buildings. I bought my first fourplex with a guy that I went to school with, and he became my first partner. So there was the first indication. We bought a fourplex for $280,000 on a street called Snow Drive. I remember the address, 51559 Snow Drive, till today. So the art of finding the deal, I think, in a competitive marketplace, for especially for real estate, because it's obviously competitive. There's tons of agents out there. There's tons of people looking around trying to figure out how they can make a buck. But it seems like over the course of the last 30 years, you've found or you, you have the eye to find the right deal. And I think that that's something that separates you from maybe some youngster out there that's working for Marcus Milchap today that's trying to break ground and, and become the next hotshot. But over the course of all these years that you've experienced, you have an eye. And, and you're able to spot a deal that's, you know, maybe something you can flip quickly, or maybe there's certain transactions that you're looking to grab and, and hold on for 10 years. It was. And you know what? There was one of the things that I learned is everybody was buying to hold forever. Mm. And you know what can ruin a good investment? Holding it forever because your returns go down and down. Let me explain to you. Let's say that you buy an apartment building in 1994. 
That's the, 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 the bottom of the market on the recession from 1990 to 1995. Let's say you buy it in 1993, right on the bottom of the bottom where nobody else wanted to, to buy. You took a chance. In 1995, the rents went, went from 1985 till 1995. In Silicon Valley, the rents didn't go up a nickel. In 1995, they started to go up at a four, five, six, seven percent a year, and then it changed to go three or four percent a quarter. So, yeah. one of the things that you started realizing is that appetite for for housing came back, uh, and the reason behind it is because the demographics change, and it's not that you become. Uh, you know, genius, you got to recognize what movement movement on the market is happening for you to go and start stepping up at a faster pace and convince people than do it. Right. I, you know, I actually remember those times because I was in college. So 1994, 95, they were just building the Paseo Plaza right across the street from uh, Uchida Hall. Yes. And I remember going, I'm, in, I'm a freshman, sophomore in college. And I told my dad, I'm like, hey, dad, you should buy me a condo. <laughs> <laughs> you should buy yourself a condo. There's a condo right across the street from the school. These places are nice. They're only like $300,000. And, you know, of course, my dad, you know, he's from a small town out in, in, in the desert, and he laughed at me. He's like, $300,000 for a condo? Are you kidding me? Like, you must be crazy. <laughs> and I think that those Paseo Plaza, I don't know what they go for today, but I think, you know, it, maybe two years later, they doubled in price. It, yes. was, it was extremely fast, and I think those... You know, small two-bedroom condos are probably 1.5 at this point. Yeah, Paseo Plaza was built by Barry Swenson in those days, I remember. And one of the things that I got to tell you is nobody knows, but the uh, uh, if you start seeing move, movement at a faster pace, you just got to pick something that you can buy with a little bit of upside. Where is the upside? People use these terms, and I don't want to leave anybody out of this conversation. Upside means whatever the current owner is not doing, and you can take because of what you see. That can be a painted building, you know, remodeled interiors. Nobody told me how to remodel. I learned that by walking into a place, there's a difference of how the, uh, uh, into an apartment to rent, there's a difference of how the, you feel about the apartment by the way that you smell, the way the light is in there. And I started to pick on these factors and say, you know what? There's simple things, but I used to go out there and, and, and run my finger through the uh, uh, kitchen countertops, and there was dust. There was like a lot of dust in there, and it was dirty. I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to rent that place. But right. I learned that if I have speak and span, you know, a clean place, and you spend fifty dollars on somebody to to clean up the building inside these units, you can you can you can get the renters. And if my competition is not doing it, and I can do it, why shouldn't I? I spent a lot of time living downtown San Jose, so I know this uh, the so-called slumlord, but you know, downtown San Jose, obviously there's always a strong market when something is built around a university. San Jose State is a little bit unique because it's a university, but it's in a downtown metropolitan area, which is a little bit rare compared to, you know, for a university that size of some odd 25 to 30,000 students, and it's right downtown San Jose. And from my experience, it didn't seem like landlords were doing anything to these properties. When I was living True. in apartments... I mean, they were really bad and there just wasn't seem, there didn't seem to be much effort. So I guess that is what led you to some opportunity. I know you've owned over the course of time, different apartment complexes around the university. And, and I'm sure that exactly what you just said, go in there and find out 
what can I do to make more students want to live in this place? You know, one of the things that is is <laughs> uh, pretty funny is I live in so many places because I didn't have a lot of money and we were changing roommates and all that. So I was looking always for, for, a, for a cheaper place to, to live. Not a better place, but a cheaper place. Right. So I ended up, you know, living in this place. It's called the Sands Apartments. And I tell you the address, 460 South 10th Street. I lived there for from 1980, uh, 1980 to 1982. I ended up buying that building and the building behind it. It was just a couple of steps away from the Super Taqueria. And, uh, you know, I owned that building and I sold it. And that gave me the opportunity when the building uh, be, uh, came to the market, I knew the building inside out. I put an offer right away and I got it. So some of those things that you go through, in life, you never know when you're going to be able to use it. I have been so fortunate to be able to put the things that I that they were kind of normal. I never thought that by traveling all over the apartments in San Jose, around San Jose State, I dominated that market when I was a broker and selling building after building in South 10, South 3rd, right across the street. I used to, you know, from the parking lot. And I, I sold some of those buildings two, three times over, you know. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about mentors? I mean, when you were young and you're coming up, did you have anybody or is there anybody that's memorable in your mind? I'm sure there's always been people that have tried to advise you over the years, but did you have anybody that made an impact, any kind of mentor that you had that kind of helped you out earlier in your career? Yes. I, I think in my in my real estate career, definitely Jim Castellanos, Steve Ritchie, they were great mentors to me. Then uh, I met back in 1990 to... Uh, Bill Millichap, uh, rest in peace. You know he just passed this year, and it's, it's a great loss for the uh, real estate industry. And he, they were guys that they were really driven not only by making money, by the fact that they were the pioneers of real estate, and they saw that there were a lot of things that they could be do done in the industry. I mean, George Marcus one was one of those guys that created a, a standard between the buyer and the seller in terms of expenses. The sellers had to understand that the buyer had higher real estate taxes, real estate insurance, and that had to be considered into the factor of value. Many, you know, when I used to go on and meet with, with owners, many owners say, hey, I don't care what the uh, expenses for the buyers are. These are my expenses. And they had numbers that they thought that they were, um, their, their property was worth tons tons of money, a lot more than it really was. So I could never make a sale. So the, the, the place to start of making a sale is, do you know how much your real estate is worth? And they will ask me, I don't know, you're the expert. You tell me, I said, perfect. Right. Let me have your income and expense and let me go and prepare a proposal for you. Right. So if you cannot align on an agreement of how much the property is worth, you cannot go out there and represent somebody, especially when people tell you, Bring me an offer. You know how many people tell me, bring me an offer? I'm going to go to the buyer. How are you going to bring an offer if you cannot show them the, the numbers? How are you going to sell when you sell it? This is it. This is the address. I, I mean, it's impossible to, to do things like that. And hopefully, the, uh, and, and fortunately, no, hopefully, fortunately, the industry has evolved dramatically. And that was, thank you for, you know, thanks to George Marcos, who was the guy that really educated the majority of the public out there, even buyers and sellers, uh, in order to see how much are the properties worth, why people should have a uh, 
you know, certain amount of years in order to hold the real estate, real estate that is held forever is really dilutes, your depreciation gets gone. You got to understand the different the re- different rules of the game. I mean, with Mr. Biden in power, the rules have changed. And every time that they change, you shouldn't say, oh, it's going to be real bad or real good. I think that the better question is, what are the changes that are going to happen in the industry that are going to affect my clients or myself? And what can I do either to prevent it or to take advantage of that to make more sales? Right. Adaptability, I think, is key. And this is going to go back to 1984. 1984, you were ending your (laughs) judo career, something that you'd spent a lifetime up to that point pursuing this career at the highest level of judo. And for a couple of years, you were kind of uh, struggling, trying to figure out where I want to be. And you wanted to be a real estate agent. You wanted to be a businessman. And now, 30 years later, you've kind of maybe in, in some terms reached the top. You're one of the one of the best uh, salesmen from Marcus Milchap over the years. I think you've had something like $900 million in transactions. And what is it that drives Ed Cerna today? What, what motivates you now? You know what? I think that what drives me is, you know, to have the opportunity of uh, not having. I think that the best motivator and, and some of the things that I have deprived my kids in, in their ability to be more motivated is to is taking away uh, the fact that, you know, that they had too much around them and they they somehow you lose appreciation. I think that for me, the, you know, the fact that I didn't have much and I had to prove myself, my dad was, was upset because I came to the state without his permission and he thought that I was going to do other things other than going to school. And I said, no, this is what I'm going to be doing. I had to keep in mind that the most important thing is that I have to prove myself, not to anybody else. I got to prove myself that I can do it. It's, it's very hard to go out uh, every day and look at yourself in the mirror and see, do I still have it? And, you, you know, in sales, we have this, this saying that is, you're just as good as your last closing. Because you know what? The last closing is yesterday. What is it today that is going to drive you, challenge you? And, and, and you know what? I think that I started selling four, six, eight apartment units. And today, you know, I look at 250, 300. And, and, and I see the change that has happened to me. It's not only in, in, in the number of units. It started with my psychology. And the psychology is something that I struggled with back in 1984, going back to your question, because I was lost. I have lost my identity as a judo player. I, I analyze it now. What happened to me in those two years that I was totally lost? And you know what happened is I lost my identity. I was not the judo guy carrying my judo gi with my black belt. You know how much pride there is when you put your gi on and you have your black belt and you tie it up? Just remember when you tied up that knot before when you're going to go and see an opponent. It's powerful. It's very powerful, man. It's been awesome to see all of the success. You've obviously had a lot of success financially in your life, but I want to talk a little bit just for you know the last few minutes of our, our talk here is that you know we're obviously uh, most of our listeners are judo players and we talk a lot about health and wellness and fitness and f- since this is just audio people don't know but you've done a really good job of taking care of yourself not just mentally but physically can you tell us what you do to keep your body healthy these days well i i tell you what i spent thousands of dollars in the past on trying to find out what 
other people do in order to be successful and goes back to the same things of judo. I think there's five things that I find anybody can do and everybody should do to be successful. The first thing is you got to feed your mind. You got to read every day, maybe five to 10 pages, not a lot of some new material, something that is positive. And you got to do that early in the morning. I have my rituals, um, uh, reading like that, the Motivation Manifesto, fantastic book. I, I recommend it to anybody. I like to read a lot, you know. The number two is you got to feed your body. You feed your body not only with good food, but exercise. Exercise brings you oxygen, and you got to do 20 to 30 minutes a day, not more than that. Don't think that it's got to be hours of workout, but it's got to be substantial. Number three is you got to guard your mind against negative thinking. You got to repel out of your mind everything that is negative thinking or everything that comes from people around you that think negative or think that you cannot do it. Get rid of that. Number four is you got to get yourself a mentor. Mentors are very important. Mentors are all over the place if you take them seriously. Don't be so shy and approach people that are better than you. That will develop some... uh, sense of being humble to you to accept the fact that there are people better than you. And number five, you got to give more than you receive. That's, that's the things that I think that are very important and, and took me a while to really, you know, find out what is it that is going to make me a better person. And I think if you do that, I, I was going to the gym today in the morning and I was sore and tired and, uh, the coach came out to me and, and and he said to me, what makes you come today? No, none of the other guys came today to work out. And, you know, I said, Hollis, what made me come today is the fact that I'm so tired, but there's nothing more important to me than walking today and give it my best for one hour. This hour is for me. And it's the present. I don't think about what I'm going to do after, and I'm not thinking about what I did yesterday and how many more things I could do when I was in better shape. This is it for me, one hour. Well, they say if you don't find the time to take care of your health, there's going to be a time where you're forced to find the time to take care of your sickness. Yes. So, man, it's it's, uh, really good to have you on the podcast. I've been uh, thinking of having you on for some time. You know, Mike's been uh, pushing me to get you. And you've got a great story and you've been, you know, whether you know it or not, but a lot of people from the San Jose State Judo team, a lot of the younger guys, guys my generation, you know, we've looked up to you. Somebody who had a great judo career and you continued to persevere in life after sport. And I think a lot of athletes and young people in general struggle to find their identity, you know, especially when a big chapter in life comes to an end, similar to what happened to you in 1984. And learning to overcome defeat in a way that allows you to pursue new ventures with an open mind is never easy, but I think it's a very critical attribute that that deserves more attention. I think your story is definitely going to resonate with a lot of our listeners, and I'm definitely going to go back and think about the five things that you just said, you know, your advice when it comes to feeding your mind and your body and ridding the negative energy finding mentors, and lastly, you know, giving more than you receive, man. This is uh, some really good advice, and I want to thank you not only just for your words of wisdom today, but for, you know, taking the time out of your day to do this interview. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope that we can do it again sometime. It was a great time. Thank you very much, Chuck. Look forward to the next one. All right.
Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit judocast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.